Church, I want to invite you to have a seat, and as you are taking a seat, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids Blue Station, and so if your age is three uh, to five years old, I want to invite you to uh, join Mrs. Shadden over there in the corner, uh, waving at us right now, her and Mrs. Sarah. Uh, we'll be teaching a lesson this morning and, uh, and, and sharing a time with them. This morning, they're going to be looking at this fact, again, that God is holy. You might say, well, we looked at that last week. Well, God's holy, and, and can you really cover that in one week? So they're going to take two. To be praying for them as they look at that this morning. We don't intend in any way to babysit children, but we recognize that this is a great opportunity for them uh, to be encouraged, for parents to be helped, and, uh, and we believe by that lives to be changed for the glory of God. And so if that's your desire this morning, uh, take your child right over there and uh, be praying for them um, as, they, as they go that way. I, I want to jump into the text, but there's so many things that are on my heart, and as I am a pastor and a Baptist one at that, I feel like I should take a little bit of time here and just encourage you guys and share a little bit of what's on my heart. I, when I thought about God calling me to be a pastor, one of the things I didn't want to do was think about was be that pastor, a part of that church that was always talking about giving. And I really feel like I don't have to be that pastor. I always wondered if I would have to be that guy that's like, come on, church, give. That's not something I have to do. The Word of God is changing your lives. He's changing your hearts. He's changing my heart. And he has created in this body a, a group of people that are very generous. And so I, I was just brought to tears this week as I found out what um, the final offering was. It is incredible to be a part of a church that's as generous as we are. And I want you to know, like, we don't give because we've been given to. Not in any sense of uh, what we receive from the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and so we give back to it. Yeah, that's a great thing, but I know this about our church. I know this about you, that you're giving because God has changed your heart. And that's one of the things. We, we don't want to be legalistic about giving, but we, I know this. As a pastor, if you're giving generously, if you're giving in a hilarious kind of a way, in a, in a, in a loving kind of a way, a way that's not having to be like motivated or arms being twisted, it says something about your heart more than likely. And so as a pastor that cares for you, I can't really see your heart, but I can see your hands. When I see hands giving to the offering, like the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, my heart is encouraged because I know that God's doing something that I can't do. He's changing hearts. And so thank you, Hagerstown Church, for being generous. Thank you for being obedient. Thank you for being kind. And I pray that, we, that God would continue to, to work that in our church as we uh, continue to send and, to, 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 uh, and to, to go as well. So that's one thing I wanted to share with you. Another thing I wanted to share with you is this. Uh, I, I want to just encourage you and cheer you along as you are going through the reading plan. Uh, if you are still going, if you began the, the, the Bible reading plan this year, I want to just tell you, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. We believe that that, that is how God changes your heart. Jesus praying for his disciples, about uh, to walk. Uh, he's praying for his disciples. John 17, uh, he's about to be crucified. He's about to be taken away, in a sense, from his disciples. And one of the things he prays for them to his father is, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify your people, your church. And he says, how are you going to do that, Father? You're going to sanctify them through truth. And then he says, what about truth? He says, your word is truth. And so don't give up. If you're reading the plan right now, we've made it through some of the tougher parts, right? Some of the stuff that may seem to be not doing something. That's not true. It is. But don't give up now. Continue moving right along. We finished a one quarter. Let's finish the year. That is how God is working sanctification in your life. And in a similar way to giving, I don't say that in a corrective way. I say that in a way to celebrate the grace that God has given to us. And so if you're not in a reading plan right now, no condemnation for you. But know this, you're just missing out. That's grace at the table for you. And so don't leave it there. Pick it up, use it, and thereby be for, more fully sanctified as God, through his spirit, works that into your hearts. Okay, that's enough of the pre-sermon. We're going to jump into the real sermon this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at chapter 9, particularly verses 38 to 41. So we've spent a lot of time in Mark. Uh, furthermore, we intend to spend a lot more time in Mark. 
And we believe that just as Jesus prayed that God changes us through his word. And so uh, another thing I feared as a pastor or as an aspiring pastor at one point in my life was, what am I going to say? What, what, I don't know if I have enough to say. I don't, I'm not writing books because I don't have anything really to say. And I don't know about writing sermons either. But then it dawned on me or by God's grace, he revealed to me that I don't have to have anything to say. God's word has something to say. And so we gather under the the authority of his word, under the power of his word, asking in faith that he would work this into our lives and that he would thereby change us. And so we're back in Mark this morning. If you remember in in, in the gospel of Mark chapter 9, it started out with the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a beautiful time. This is an amazing time. It's a vivid picture painted for us as Jesus takes some of his disciples up on top of that mountain and he's transfigured before their their eyes. One of the things that we said in that particular moment was not that Jesus' divinity had ever been removed, nor that his, at that point in time, humanity been removed, but his divinity was more fully revealed in that moment. It was life-changing for the disciples that were there with Jesus. I won't re-preach that sermon, but as they come back down the mountain, they've got some questions. Jesus speaks to them a little bit about what they're to do with that information and how they're to hold that. They get to the bottom and the balance of the disciples, the ones that were down at the, at the bottom. There was kind of like a ruckus. And what was happening down there? Well, they had tried to, 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 to remove this unclean spirit, this demon from this young child. The demon had been possessing this boy and physically and spiritually harming him. And the disciples, confident in the word that, God, that Christ had given to them and the calling he had placed on their lives, they tried to exercise this demon and they fail. They're unable to do it. And again, I won't re-preach that sermon, but Jesus delivers this boy from the bondage of that unclean spirit. Furthermore, as we continue through the text, Jesus talks to his disciples and says, hey, I want you guys to know I'm going to be killed. We're heading to Jerusalem. We're, we're in a sense, figuratively, we're leaving the, the heights of Mount Hermon and we're going to the depths of the cross there in Jerusalem. And Jesus teaches them along the way that the greatest among them was literally the one who would be the servant. Does that make any sense? It's hard for us to understand that at first blush. Jesus says that the greatest among you will be the greatest servant. He'll serve the best. He'll serve the most. Seems a little counterproductive, doesn't it? The one on the baseball team that does the most cleaning up and organizing of the clubhouse, what have you, he's the one that's going to be the best? Isn't it the one that doesn't care, that throws his stuff around and acts like he's the greatest? Jesus reveals to them a little bit about the kingdom of God and some of their misunderstandings. And maybe if you're like John, that strikes a chord in your heart. Maybe you want to say something. That's what happens in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 and following. John, hearing Jesus says, say that, thinks to his, in his mind, that, what? what? Particularly what comes to his mind It's a situation that they had recently encountered. And so let's look to the word of God and read about that. Verse 38, Mark chapter 9. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we do right now turn to you once again and ask that you bless your word in our ears. Again, Father, I confess there is no power in my logic or ability to speak. It all falls flat unless you work. So your church has assembled this morning dependent on you and in hopes that you will heal, that you will draw, 
but you'll strike down and bind up. And we ask that these things be done in hope and with joy. In the name of Jesus, amen. So a few weeks ago, our current elder candidate, Chris Gomes, he preached for us verses 30 through 37. And there's been a couple weeks that have gone in between there, and we've not been in uh, Mark chapter 9, not very much anyway. I think it was referenced once in the last few weeks. Um, But I'm thankful for his pastoral exposition and application of those verses here in our gathering. From that text, he lifted this thought. And it's worth saying again, because not only was it a good thought, a true thought, but it's also applicable to our text this morning. But he lifted out of the text there, the Christian path to greatness is the way of servanthood. The Christian path to greatness is the way of servanthood of servanthood and in a sense that's still the main idea of this passage as well john has heard that and for some reason he thinks to tell jesus at this point in time about this guy who when they tried to 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 stop him from casting out demons he wouldn't listen to him maybe john's thinking jesus we're trying to be the greatest servant but that guy over there is giving us a run for our money we were supposed to be the greatest servants we're trying to do that and now we've got this other cat that's copycatting What are we supposed to do about that? You need to stop him. We're the greatest servants of all. Maybe John is saying. Jesus still says to that, the the Christian path to greatness is the way of servanthood, not to be even the greatest servant. There's four facts about uh, the kingdom and about serving in the kingdom of God that I think come to the surface in this text. And so I want to go ahead and let you know them right at the onset. So four facts about serving in the kingdom of God. We'll see these as we walk through the text, but I'm going to give them to you now. There are no one-man shows. Of course, save Christ. Amongst disciples, as we serve Jesus, there are no one-man shows. Next, we'll look at this idea that there is no middle ground. It seems harsh. It seems a little bit too heavy, perhaps. How can that be possible? We'll look at that in just a moment. But Jesus lets us know there's no middle ground in serving. You're either for him or you're against him. Some of you need to know that this morning. Another point that we'll see, another fact about the kingdom as we serve is that there are no trivial tasks. There are no trivial tasks as we serve Christ. And then finally, there is no lack of reward. There's no lack of reward. Reward. And so let's get started turning back to verse 38. It says this, And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I for one, I'm glad that it's John speaking up and not Peter. We're going to give Peter a break today. Or at least maybe Peter's still a little bit sore. Maybe, I don't know if this is even possible that, that Peter be a little gun shy. But uh, for whatever reason, he's not the one speaking up today. John is. Incidentally, this is the only time uh, that we hear John speaking on his own in the entire, uh, entirety of the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the only time that we hear John speaking on his own. Now, of course, John's speaking on his own, but he is speaking on behalf of the disciples. And so John's thoughts here are his thoughts, but they're also in accordance with the disciples, the, the group of disciples, the 12. Again, I'm just glad that John's speaking up and he's giving Peter a little bit of a break. But John's likely agitated. Something's caused him to think about this story, about this unnamed exorcist, this rogue guy that's out there doing his thing and he's not part of the 12. And he decides to inform Jesus about him. It's likely that this unnamed exorcist, this uh, rogue guy here, that he's likely still a disciple of Jesus. I believe that he is. Maybe even he's one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Either way, I'm convinced fully that he is, in some sense, a disciple of Jesus. And furthermore, he is exercising. And when I say exercising, you might be thinking like he's doing like gymnastics or jumping jacks or something like that. Well, he is exorcising, not exercising, right? Uh, I don't know that they need to tell Jesus about him exercising unless he's doing like, maybe he's got some weird tights on. In that century, that would be weird. Maybe like a headband or something like that. But no, he's not exercising. He's an exorcist. He's calling demons out of people that are being oppressed by those demons. 
that are being quite literally possessed by demons. Demon possession is when a human being is controlled by an evil spirit, by a demon. It's a terrible and evil event to experience. And in these days, the need to exercise demons was far more common, at least far more common than it is here in the U.S. Still today, there is a very high level of demon possession around the world in various places and it's a common practice still to in the name of jesus to cast out demons maybe some of you have had experience with that maybe you've heard stories about it maybe you've even seen it again not so common here in the u.s and yet still taking place Jesus had granted his disciples the ability to cast out demons to to literally free from this possession, from this evil bondage, those who had been enslaved. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 15, we see Jesus doing that. He's giving them the ability, calling them to do that. Also in chapter 6, we see it again. What we also see is that perhaps the power that Jesus had given to his disciples had maybe gone to their head. Maybe they had begun to think too highly of themselves. They were the twelve. They hadn't determined that they would be the 12. Jesus had done that. He had called them. He had chosen them. He had given them the ability to do this. And yet at the same time, at the same time they may have allowed that to go to their head. In the ancient world, exorcism, it rested largely on faith in, in the power of some magical formula. And the magical formula uh, would include the names of various deities and, and they would be kind of stacked on one another and, and they would do this in, in, in some kind of a way that it would create an equation that would quite literally lead to the deliverance of those who were un, in bondage. And so in the name of this deity and in the name of this king and in the name of this group of people, I pronounce you free. Or I command that spirit to, to, to leave. We see that that uh, explanation really is verified by the case of the seven sons of Sceva that's recorded in Acts chapter 19. If you uh, want a story that is both sad and uh, quite hilarious, um, if you need a little levity, we won't look at it right now, but you could write down Acts chapter 19 and read about the seven sons of Sceva and how they attempted to be exorcists and call uh, demons out in the name of Paul and Jesus. And, uh, well, they got, they got it handed to them, and they did, it didn't turn out very well. Uh, but they tried to use this kind of stacking formula. This man, this unnamed exorcist that Peter is speaking about, it says that he was calling the demons out in the name of Jesus. So the exorcist was actually claiming the name of Jesus while calling the demon to come out. And from the reading, we can gather that this man was actually being successful. And so he wasn't just some false disciple coming up with some crazy formula to, to get this demon to come out. But no, he was actually claiming the name of Christ. He was claiming to be working in conjunction with and under the authority of Jesus Christ. And he was being successful. And John says about this guy, he says, Christ, master, teacher, we tried to stop him. And he says, because he wasn't following us. He wasn't following us. Well, Jesus is about to tell John to chill out, but that doesn't mean that, that we're not at times called to call out false teachers who claim to be working in Jesus' name but are actually not. So don't be too quick to say, whoa, this, this proves here that we shouldn't be calling people out. We, we shouldn't be condemning false teachers. Of course not. That's not what Jesus is saying. So if you're asking yourself, well, how do we know if somebody is really working in the name of Jesus and when we're, not to, when we're not to avoid calling people out? How do you know if a person is really working in the name of Jesus? Well, I just want to offer you two questions. We could give lots of questions. If you're taking notes, you could write these down. Something like this. How do we know if a person really is working in the name of Jesus? First, 
Does it line up with Jesus' message? Does it line up with Jesus' message? And not the message that you like. Not the parts of Jesus' message that kind of make your heart feel all giddy and sweet. But asking, does that message really line up? Does their message really line up with the message of Jesus? And second, you could ask yourself this about this particular person or this group. Who is getting the glory? Who is getting the glory? The Word of God tells us that he doesn't share his glory with another. There are some groups out there, there are some organizations, there are some false teachers who siphon and and scrape off the top some of the glory as they so-called work in Jesus' name, and yet their ministry, their work is actually for themselves. And in no way does that honor God, and nor are they working in conjunction with what Christ is doing. Let's go back to that first question. What, What does their message do? What does it have to do with Jesus' message? Is there a correlation between the two well we have to ask ourselves first what is jesus's message well summed up in mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 i didn't sum this up this is what jesus said this is what mark records mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 jesus came into galilee at the beginning of his ministry and what was he doing he was proclaiming the gospel of god he was proclaiming the good news of god and saying The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. These are some facts, but what are we to do about those facts? We are to, what, repent and believe in the good news. We are to repent and believe in the good news because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is Jesus' own message. In part, repentance is agreeing with God about your sin. In order to be a Christian, you have to agree with God about your sin. God looks at your sin and he hates it. From the youngest to the oldest, from the best of us to the worst of us, he looks at us and he says, I hate your sin. And he says, you must turn from your sin. This is the message of Jesus Christ. And so if you ask yourself today, Does the message that this person or this group, does it line up with Jesus' message? Well, does it involve repentance? With us agreeing in our head that our sin is an affront to God. And do our hearts line up with that and say, we must now hate sin because God hates sin. And finally, do our hands then say, we will not sin with our hands, nor with our mouths, nor with our feet, nor with our eyes. Why? Because God has told us not to. If a message, somebody working miracles in some sense doesn't have that as part of it, then it is not the gospel and it is not in the name of Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus, when speaking of his message, says this, In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, you'll remember, we just went through this. And Jesus, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, said to them, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he says, and be my disciple, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Put himself behind the the will of God and the need of his neighbor. Take up his own cross his own means of death, and follow Jesus, so to speak, on his road to Calvary. If there's a message, some person or some group claiming to be working in the name of Christ and they are void, their message is void of repentance and self-denial and taking up your cross, it's not the message of Christ and their work is not in his authority nor in his name. God-honoring work is consistent with the message of Jesus, and it brings glory to God alone. God-honoring work is consistent with the message of Jesus Christ, and it brings glory to God alone. And so John was right in that there is a category for these false workers, and yet at the same time, he was wrong about this particular man. 
But it is worth continuing to explore this by considering Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. They speak to this issue. Jesus himself is the one recorded here in Mark, Matthew chapter 7, rather, and he says this, On that day, that final day, that day of judgment, he says, Many will say to me, to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And there will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you've been in church any amount of time, I want you to pay attention especially hard right now. Many times this passage is cited so as to demonstrate that you, you can never really know if you're saved or not. That's foolishness. That's not what this passage is saying. Look at the end of verse 23. Jesus does pronounce that many are confused, that many are wrong, but he doesn't try to say you won't know. He's saying, hey, this is who they really are. At the end of verse 23, he says, you workers of lawlessness. This is how he describes the false teachers. This is how he describes those who have a faux sense of security in Christ. They are workers of lawlessness. Their message and their movements are inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to that he says, repent and die to self. Turn from your lawlessness to the power of the risen Lord. Work righteousness. And so the fact that Jesus de declares to them that he never knew them indicates that they were actually and finally not working in his name. And so how did Jesus know that these guys were not his guys? Well, again, they're workers of lawlessness. There was no turning from their sin. And their message was not about denying yourself. Church, that's one of the beauties of the church one of the purposes that's one of the reasons why he's called us together so that we can look at one another and we can say hey i'm not seeing the the righteousness working in your life like jesus said there would be so we encourage one another we 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 call to each other to repent just as jesus did to us initially and we say turn from that turn to the living way turn to righteousness run from sin and we lead each other as we sang this morning to the shoreline of righteousness away from lawlessness. We need each other, church. We need one another. That's why we, one of the reasons why we can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And those people that Jesus condemns in Matthew 7, there's no turning from sin and there's no righteousness. So church, anytime that you hear a man or a woman or some organization speaking on behalf of Jesus, doing great and miraculous things, but you hear or see it divorced from the call of repentance and the call to self-denial, be warned, they are false teachers. And they themselves will be condemned. And if you follow them, you are in danger of that same condemnation. But listen, John's concern was not for this man's false doctrine. I wanted to, I wanted to clarify that there is a category for that. Of course there is. But that's not John's concern here. It should be our concern, should be John's as well, to investigate this man. But this guy doesn't have a problem with character. That's not what John is pointing out to. No, it's because this man wasn't following us. In, in other words, he wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of the elite. Why does John use the word us? Why doesn't he use the word you? He's speaking to Jesus. Why doesn't he say, Jesus, I tried to stop him because he wasn't following you. Why does he say he wasn't following us? Well, maybe there's a clue there. Maybe you already know the, perhaps the motivation to John's question. Have you ever noticed yourself becoming a bit possessive about other people? Like maybe you did in like third grade. Maybe you still do it today if you're like me. Like that's my friend. You can't be that person's friend. That's my friend, right? And some relationships that we have, are they're designed to be exclusive. Um, but at other times, we do become a little bit possessive, don't we? In the sense that we say, this is mine. 
Maybe you've seen that in your own children, or maybe you've seen that in some of your nephews or perhaps your siblings. You see, they, they really have this keen sense of scarcity, as if, if mom looks at them just for a minute and smiles longer than she did for me, that there's not enough love being passed around. Kids, do you ever feel that way? Like maybe there's not enough attention. Well, the, the neat thing is about, about God compared to our own parents is that God can give you attention and not take attention away from somebody else. That God can love you and appreciate you and celebrate what he's doing in your life and not take away from somebody else. He's able to do that. Whereas your own parents are not. John maybe is not living in light of that truth. He's become a bit possessive. And it gets even worse earlier in chapter 9 just to kind of bring all of the, the backdrop into uh, to, to focus here. Earlier in chapter 9, some of the, the disciples, remember, they had failed to exercise a demon that was possessing a young man. I want you to, these things are in the same chapter. They're, they're close in proximity throughout this text, and so I think it's worth recognizing that some of Jesus' disciples, the, the inner circle, the 12, they had failed to exercise a demon, and yet this man, who's not even one of the 12s, a 12, is succeeding in exercising a demon. How do you think that makes the 12 feel? John here acting as a spokesman, maybe like, dude, what? Are you kidding me? That dude has never even heard you pray. He's never been in the boat with you while you were sleeping. He never saw any of that. And yet he is able to do this. And you tell us, we didn't pray enough? Come on, man. You've not given us enough. And so John is coming to Jesus and saying, hey, come on. And so some of the disciples, they've tried and failed, and some stranger tries, and he succeeds, and then John tries to stop him, and the guy won't even listen. You think John's feathers are ruffled? You better believe his feathers are ruffled. Jesus, how can we serve you? We want to serve you. We want to be the greatest. Oh, we want to be the greatest, Jesus. And yet this guy over here, he's serving more than us. Please stop him. Please. Allow us to be the greatest servant. Jesus, we want to be great. What does Jesus say to that? What does Jesus say to this guy, to John? Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him. Do not stop him. What is Jesus wanting to convey to John and to the other disciples that are listening? I think it's fact number one about the kingdom and about serving in the kingdom. And that number one, there are no one-man shows. There are no one-man shows. As we serve in the church, the only one-man show, let's just get this out of the way, the only one-man show was Jesus dying for the sins of many, rising, demonstrating the justification that he achieved and his further ascension in, to the Father and sitting down. Aside from him, there's no one-man shows in the church. In what kingdom does an unnamed disciple, an unnamed leader, an unnamed person, not even a leader, in what kingdom does he succeed in exercising a demon while one of the 12 fails? In what kingdom? I'll tell you, it's in the upside-down kingdom. That's where. You see, there are no elite. There are no all-stars. With these two men being compared, John and this unnamed exorcist, there is only one difference. Can you spot it? We can assume that John at some point in his life exercises a demon, delivers a, a person that is under the bondage of some evil spirit that he delivers them from him. And what would be the difference between that story and the unnamed exorcist's story? What would be the difference for both of them, the goals, we can assume, were the same. Glory to God, verification for Jesus, and liberation of the possessed. But for both of them, we can assume that their goal was realized, that this exorcist had been successful, and at some point in John's ministry, he was also successful in that way. So what's the difference? John's issue with this guy is that it wasn't John performing the miracle. 
That's what I want to offer to you this morning. He wasn't the one on stage, and that bothered him. He wasn't the one taking the game-winning shot. He wasn't the one to take the buzzer-beating shot. His name wasn't listed in the credits of this particular situation, and he didn't write the forward. And that bothered John. But isn't that how God works sometimes? If one of the folks that you perceive to, to be a peer or to be an equal to you somehow wins in a way that you haven't experienced, does that bother you? If one of your superiors would have done it, somebody that you claim is better than you, of course, that's only right and fair. But somebody that's not as good as you to be promoted or speaking in the church to, for somebody that doesn't share the gospel as much as you to lead somebody to the Lord. Does that bother you? Just as long as it's not one of the people below me, Jesus. One, as long as it's a superior, then I, I can get along with that. Jesus graciously responds, my friends, when I win... Those who are in Christ, they win. When I win, we all win. When God is glorified, when Jesus' message is verified, and when the ones that are enslaved are set free, Christ wins, and we win. It doesn't matter if you had a direct part in it or not. When God wins, those with him win also. Think about standing on the sidelines of a baseball game, maybe a t-ball or a little league game how we can celebrate and we can be encouraged and we can just cheer right along even though you're not the one who caught that fly ball or you're not the one that threw that out or made that double play or pitched that no-hitter. Maybe you're not the one, but you can still cheer. Why? Because in a sense, you're on that team. Jesus looks and says, listen, when I win, you win. We don't need any all-stars. We don't need any one-man shows or one-man teams. Let's celebrate together. Church, what God is doing right now in the world around us, what he's doing in, in Hagerstown, it's bigger than us, and it's bigger than you. And incidentally, it's not about you, and it's not about us. Do you, do you remember back when Hagerstown Church was just a thought and even when we first began, we said this on the regular. We said that we're not bringing the gospel to Hagerstown. If you remember that video, maybe you can still find it. Maybe I'll post it. That'd be a cool memory this week. Check it out. Uh, if, I, if I forget, remind me on social media, and I'll, I'll try to find it and link it up there. It's pretty neat to say all the things that we prayed for and all the things that we hoped for God is giving to us. But anyway, in that video, we said this, that we're not bringing the gospel to Hagerstown, that it's been here for a long time. And God's just calling us as reinforcements to join the work that's here. So we celebrate along with our brothers and sisters who have faithfully proclaimed the gospel and served here in Hagerstown. We're just joining the team. We're just standing next to our brothers and praying that God would continue to work his miracles and power amongst the unbelieving here in this city. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 kind of touches on this issue. You have, uh, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm thinking particularly of verse 3 and following. This is what the Word of God says. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Only behaving in a fleshly way when you are jealous. When you want to be the one that made that game-winning score all by yourself. Verse 4 for when, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Verse 5, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul says. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants... And he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are, not, uh, you are God's field. 
God's building. It's the word of God. Whether it's Paul that gathers the fruit or Apollos, it is by God and it is for God. It was God's will to grow the church. It was God's work that grew the church and it was God's glory that that growth of the church goes to. Jesus didn't need any star players. He didn't need any one-man teams. Incidentally, again, there are none. And it's the same way in the local church. Christians, we all have a part to play. And so we should be celebrating the work of God in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We may not be so bold or, or foolish to require that a brother or a sister stop serving Jesus. But our lack of encouragement, our lack of celebration may be just as effective. Think about that. You may not be so brave to ask that God would stop the mouths of somebody else so that they can stop receiving a good reward and stop receiving glory and stop winning for Jesus so that you can. You may not be doing that, but just as effective may be your lack of encouragement. Just as effective may be your lack of celebration. Serving the Lord can be a wearisome life. And with that in mind, we are to encourage one another. We're to encourage one another in our work while reminding one another of the promise that Jesus gave that we all will reap a harvest if we continue to sow, if we continue to labor and not faint. And there's a real danger in that. There's a real possibility that that happen. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we not only don't ask Jesus to stop somebody, but we ask that he send more laborers. And when he does, we celebrate that. Hagerstown Church, when other churches win, we win. When other people are saved and baptized at the door, on the, at the next door or, or down the street or on the other side of the world, we win. Why? Because Christ wins. And so church, play like a team. Encourage one another. Thank one another. We need more of that culture to be developed in this church. And we've said this from the beginning. We are all in process together. We're all in process together. We're all playing different parts. We're all in different positions. We're in different stages of our walk with Christ. And yet we're all on the same team. And so I want to ask you right now, how can you encourage, I want really to be thinking, how can you encourage others around you to continue serving in Jesus' name? And I'm not talking about something like up in the sky, abstract, like, yeah, we could maybe do this. I'm saying like right now, who is around you that you could encourage today, that you could celebrate? And, and don't be like a, a three-year-old and think, well, there's not enough praise to go around. I want to make sure that I keep some for myself. Foolishness. Who can we celebrate? Who can you encourage around you? Our church, we need more of that. And so I would ask you right now, get out a pen, get out a paper. If you, if you record notes digitally, get that out and write down the name of somebody that you need to celebrate, that you need to encourage, that you need to thank and write down what you're going to write, what, what you're going to say to them. Church, we don't just need to not be that, those people that are all the time trying to hoard glory for ourselves, but let's be the people that in Jesus' name we celebrate and encourage those who are operating in Jesus' name. Looking back at the text, verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. What, what he's saying is that it would take a great deal of time before a, a person's mind could be changed to the point that he would go from doing a miracle for Jesus to then speaking disparagingly about him. And he, he kind of states this in a semi-rhetorical kind of way. And it makes me really think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is what the word of God says. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, to idols that can't even speak. However, you were led. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord unless, except in the Holy Spirit. So, hey, Corinthians, remember, you used to be pagans. You had nothing good to say about Jesus. You were led in that way. You were, in a, in a, in a similar sense to the demon-possessed, you were captive in that way. And yet those who have the Spirit of God working in their lives, only they are able to say of Jesus that he is Lord. To do a truly great work in the name of Jesus is no different, apparently. The Spirit of God is working in your heart. And so the disciples, in a sense, are being corrected. John, particularly, is being corrected Hey, don't be so quick to criticize others who, who follow Christ but don't belong to your particular group. Really, in a sense, Jesus kind of gives his disciples a mind-your-own-business kind of a talk, right? You guys, maybe you've, you've, got, you've received one of those before. Mind-your-own-business, right? Of course, it was in love. Verse 40. For the one, Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. And their day to be for Jesus meant quite a bit. There's no riding the fence in this particular day and in this particular culture. Either Jesus was the Messiah or he wasn't. Either Jesus was raised from the dead or he wasn't. Either he was Lord or he wasn't. Today we are afforded the opportunity, though it's not a good one, to cheaply side with Jesus, to ride the fence, so to speak. Many people will drop Jesus' name and claim to be one of his followers, but when you do a little introspection or a little investigation, rather, we find that their message doesn't line up with Jesus's. Neither do, do their actions. The night that Jesus was arrested, when Peter denied being a follower of Jesus three times, that stands in contrast to our culture and our context. I want you to know this. There is coming a day when it will be incredibly difficult for us as Christians here in the United States of America to side with Jesus in a way that does not bring you damage or harm to your reputation or to your life. And yet while you want to blow the whistle today, I can assure you that day is not today. Unfortunately, we can still cheaply side with Jesus, but that is not what's taking place here. Jesus is saying, for the one who is not against us, he is for us. Jesus is only listing two categories. I want you to think about that. He only lists two categories, for us, against us. He's saying they're either enemies or there are allies. But in my experience, there's actually a third category, right? Are you thinking, are you on the same lines with me? Like Jesus, you, you, you kind of squashed this flat and so there's for us or against us, but I am aware of a third category. Maybe it's the uninterested, the unmoved, the middle ground. Isn't there that? Well, let's take a vote. Let's, 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 let's practice this. You, I want everybody to, uh, to, to, to play a part in this, but you don't have to if you don't want to, I guess. Had to leave that out there, right? So raise your hand. This is in connection with the greatest chick, uh, chicken sandwich ever made. So I want you to raise your hand if you think that Chick-fil-A offers the best chicken sandwich in town. Raise your hand. Okay. Now, put them down. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you think that now Popeye's uh, gives uh, Chick-fil-A a run for their money. Okay. Now, put your hands down. <clears throat> that might seem blasphemous, but I can assure you there is nothing in the Word of God that speaks to uh, the Lord's chicken and which one is which. I, can, I just want to lay that out there. But I did notice something about some of you. I noticed that some of you didn't vote. By the way, that was in my notes. And so I'm glad that uh, I prophesied that there would be a third group. How many of you would say this morning that I have no dog in the fight, and I don't really care, and I'm uninterested, and I'd like to be that third party? Anybody want to raise their hand? I knew there'd be at least one. We've got two. I want you to notice my hand is up for a reason. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, I, I side with Popeye's. Uh, yeah. 
In Jesus' situation, he doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it as, hey, there's either this side or, or that side, and then there's this middle ground. Jesus says, listen, there is no middle ground. He says there is no middle ground. Let me ask you this then. In which category does Jesus place the uninterested? For those of us in the Chick-fil-A, Popeye's argument, there was that third group. Where does Jesus put that third group that say, Jesus, we're neither for you or we're against you? Where does Jesus put them? They're against him. He says there's no middle ground. There's no moderate semi-disciple. There are no people in reality saying, I'm just not going to take a side. To not take a side is to take a side. Either you are for Jesus or you are against him. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You might be wondering. You might be questioning, how can that really be true? Well, let's talk about this. In the case of a crime committed against a child, to stay out of the matter, what side? To say, I'm not interested. A crime against a child, I'm just, I, don't, I don't really want to be a part of this. I don't want to speak against it. I'm obviously not for it. I just don't want to have any part in it. In that situation, you have chosen your side. And Jesus is saying similarly, he's saying, listen, if you have chosen not to take a side, then you have thereby chosen a side. And he says, you're against me. You can't look to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who ascended to the Father and sat down, finished his work at the right hand of the Father and say, I don't want to take a side. In that sense, in that way, you've already taken a side. And so in the kingdom of God, choose your side and choose wisely. Jesus goes on in verse 41. He says, for truly, amen, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You might be thinking, okay, so we just talked about like no sides, you know, like no middle ground. And now we're talking about cups of water. Why is Jesus talking about a cup of water here? I I think what he's doing is he's demonstrating that there's this seemingly insignificant task of giving somebody a cup of water. And it seems insignificant when you compare it to freeing somebody from demonic captivity. So let's take another vote. Which one do you think is greater? Which one do you think should like, get the medal at the end of the day? The one, that, the, the, the one of us that said, hey, in the name of Jesus, demon, go. And the demon goes. Or the one that's like, hey, that pastor, he's wore himself out today. I'm going to get him a cup of water. Which one do you think, which one is the more valuable task? Which one is the more important one? Jesus is trying to demonstrate for us, hey, there is not one better than the other, that anything that you do in the name of Jesus and for his glory, that it is not wasted and it is not trivial. And Jesus has chosen for some of us to serve him in this way and others to serve him in this way. And he's saying, hey, don't get confused. The work that you're doing is valuable. So you might be thinking, this is a good test for you. You might be thinking in your heart, I'd rather be the one that casts out a demon than the one that just fills up water bottles. I'd rather be the quarterback than I'd rather be the one that that runs around giving people their water after the play. Jesus is saying, listen, the work that I've called you and equipped you to do in my kingdom, it is not insignificant. It is significant, and there are no trivial tasks. That's the third fact of the kingdom. And perhaps what Jesus wanted John to see was that no matter the size of the task or the ability of the player, if it's done for Christ, if their life is lived for Christ, it is valuable. Even the trivial tasks that this world says is invaluable, God says no way. And speaking of trivial tasks, Jesus assures John and the disciples in verse 41 that nobody will buy, that that does those works will by any means lose his reward. Of course that's not going to happen. Reward, really, it could be that they'll be blessed in this life or in the next. It could mean crowns. It could mean a seat of honor in the final kingdom. But at any rate, here's what I know it means, the rewards. It means the approval of God. That's the ultimate desire that we can have in this world, is that we, at the end of our lives, at the end of our day, at the end of everything that we do, that in some way, It will be approving to God. Stands the reason that Jesus made this statement because there were those in that group, the disciples that needed to hear it. And I would venture to say that there are some here this morning that need that same reminder. That there is no lack of reward. 
And you might say, but I don't get to play the big parts. Maybe I'm just the person that's feeding people lines backstage or pulling the curtain closed and open. Is there a reward for me? And the answer that Jesus gives to you is, yes, of course, there are no trivial tasks and there is no lack of reward. And that when we give cups of cold water to those who are in need, and when we cast out demons and anything in between, that our reward is sure. And that reward is the approval of God. I love that way one commentator put it when he was speaking of this particular passage. He said, There is only faith and obedience shown in devotion to Jesus, and wherever these qualities exist, they call forth the approval of God. There is only faith and obedience shown in devotion to Jesus, and wherever these qualities exist, and in whatever way they manifest themselves in your life, they call forth the approval of God. Is that not the greatest reward that we could ever hope for? That at the end of our lives, Jesus would look at us, that he would look at you and he would say, well done. Is that not what you're running for? Is that not what you want? John's worried about this guy doing something wrong, but Jesus is pointing out that, no, John, you're wrong. This unnamed exorcist, he is truly working in my name, Jesus says. John's tempted to work in the name of John and the exorcist is working, the unnamed exorcist is working in the name of Jesus. And that's fine with him. He doesn't have to be named. It's not about self-flattery. It's about the name that he serves. And so perhaps John wasn't worried that, her, that the unnamed exorcist would get a reward, but maybe that he would get more of a reward than that guy. And maybe that's your problem this morning. Maybe, maybe that's my problem. We have this scarcity mentality that Jesus, he's speaking to that confidently, and he's saying, those who serve in my name, no matter what they do, if it's truly in my name, they will receive their reward, whether it's known or not, whether it's seen or not, whether it's written about or not, whether it's commemorated or not. Jesus, he sees it. And that sets us free. Church, I hope you can rest this week. I hope you can serve in light of that this week. That as a church, we look around the city and we celebrate where God is working. We do that every Sunday. Why? I want to catechize you. I want to teach you. I want to lead us to celebrate where God is working. And if they, if they hold to the gospel, whoever holds to the gospel, that requires them to turn from sin and trust in Jesus alone, they receive a reward. And if, if God's receiving the glory for their labor, if he's receiving, receiving the labor through the, for the church, then we can celebrate that. We will receive our reward, and so will they. So in your life group, in your D group, at your uh, dinner table, know this, that you will receive a reward from Jesus. And that frees you up then to celebrate the work of others and encourage them along the way. The kingdom of God is, listen, it's comprised of humble servants working together on the same team, working towards the glory of God and the greatest good of all mankind, which is Jesus Christ humbly working together to see Jesus glorified and man rescued. And church, as you serve in the kingdom, remember these four facts, that there are no one-man shows. There is no middle ground. There are no trivial tasks, and there is no lack of reward. As we close this morning, I want to invite you to spend some time in reflection. And so where you sit, I want to invite you to just take a moment in quiet contemplation perhaps even with your eyes closed. And think on the kindness and patience of Jesus Christ toward his disciples. They had so much to learn about the kingdom of God. They had so much to unlearn as well. But he was kind with them. He was patient towards them and he taught them. He discipled them. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. First, would you stop and consider right now how kind and patient that Jesus has been with you. Do you think about that now? Think about the kindness and patience that Jesus has demonstrated toward you. 
If you can find a way, visualize it. Perhaps in some healthy way, considering the the very sins that you've committed against our Savior, against Jesus. Consider all the foolish things that you believed and the things that you wouldn't let go of as he even revealed them to be false, and yet you still held on to them. I know that's my story. I believe that that's still going to be my story. As you think about that, I just want you to, I, I, I just want to lead you to gratitude, to thankfulness. Second, I want to ask you to consider who is Jesus wanting to use you to disciple? Who is Jesus wanting you to demonstrate kindness and patience with? And ask those who you are discipling, those who are around you, that are in your life group, in your D group, in your own home, are you patient with them? Are you kind with them, just as Jesus was with his disciples? And I pray that that gratitude and that demonstration that he has offered in your particular life, that you would thereby manifest that to those whom he has called you to serve with. That's my prayer. Let's, let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you for the testimony Christ, the correction for John. And Father, we pray and trust that you will use that admonition, that, that correction in our lives and in the life of this church to bring us joy and to bring you glory. Father, would you raise up the greatest servants in your kingdom from this place? Not because we desire to be great, but because we desire that of Christ. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.